Well, if, if you have your Bibles, open up with me to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Um, I'm going to be building off a sermon that our student pastor, Daniel Neesmith, gave a couple of weeks ago on 2 Corinthians 5. If you remember, Daniel shared with us about the joy and the privilege it is to join God in the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about how we're compelled by love to be ambassadors for God, where we persuade others to say yes to the gospel, say yes to the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, today, what I'm going to be sharing is, is what is the proper motivation to join God in missions? Um, on November the 2nd, Pastor Carlos texted me and asked if I would be willing to preach on December 27th. And this was his phrase. We all know Pastor Carlos is a man of few words. His phrase was, I want you to give us your heart for the world. So from November the 2nd to today, I've been meditating, reflecting, prayerfully considering what, what is my heart for the world? Since 2011, our family has been committed to foreign mission work. From 2012 to 2015, we lived in Muslim North Africa. 2016 to 2019, we lived in Hindu South Asia, where we were uh, pretty abruptly kicked out. Um, and since 2019 to today, we find ourselves back in Georgia, just awaiting um, what our next assignment could be from the Lord. And, and while we wait, we're thankful that we have the chance to do that um, in what is truly a pretty devi divisive, uh, maybe even godless post-Christian North America. So whether we live in North Africa or South Asia or Watkinsville, Georgia, we want to make sure that we're living on mission. And when you hear our story, when you know that we've been committed to foreign mission work, I think it's uh, easy to insinuate or imply that we do have a, a heart for the world. And by a heart for the world, we mean a, a love for the lost, a desire to see unreached peoples come to Jesus or put their faith in Jesus, a heart that's driven by compassion for the lost or a desire to see them restored to relationship with God. But as I reflected on that phrase, a heart for the world, uh, to my dismay and, and maybe even to a point of confession, I, I have to admit that I, I don't know if I possess it. Um, we know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son uh, for us, and, and we ought to love the world as well as, as Christ commands. But what I, what I want to get at is that that type of love cannot be the primary motivator for missions. If we want to make wholehearted disciples of Christ among all nations, loving lost people or loving the nations just can't be primary. And, and let me illustrate why that's the case, and, and I hope to show that today in Scripture. Um, working in foreign missions, we have the chance of hosting short-term trips uh, pretty regularly. Anything from 7 days, 10 days, to 14 days. And when we see missionaries hit the field, there's a pretty uh, uh, rhythmic pattern to their development. Like, like we know, we can predict what the first 2 to 4 weeks are going to look like for a missionary. And it's exactly what all of our short-term short uh, trip participants uh, experience. It's called the honeymoon phase. It's the first seven to ten days when everything is awesome. The food is great. The culture is great. The customs are amazing. The people are just so great. And you really feel like you're just living into what God has asked you to do. And as a long-termer, it can be pretty exciting to host short-term people. Um, namely, they bring a lot of energy. They also bring a lot of gifts. Gifts like Reese's peanut butter cups or Jif peanut butter or salsa. Uh, things you can't find in those host countries. It's a lot of fun. But it can also be really frustrating when you host those short-termers and they're sitting around the table and they're talking about how awesome the food is when you're gagging your way down it because you haven't had anything else for the last you know, three years. 
always dreaming of a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich, but you're listening to this honeymoon phase, this deep love for the people and everything's amazing. Um, But I hate to break it to you, but around day 30, there's this predictable pattern called culture shock. It's where that feeling of love is non-existent. In fact, in its place, it could be animosity. It could be hatred. It could be despair or loathing. You no longer love the culture. You're no longer loving the peoples or the customs. In fact, you're, you're angry with them. You're upset, frustrated. You may even hate them. And if the primary motivator for missions is a love for those people, how do you reconcile that, that feeling of animosity that's inevitably going to come around day 30 for you? See, that, that love for people can't be primary because it can't be sustained. And oftentimes that round of culture shock leads people to believe that they're not qualified, that, that I can't live on mission for God because I don't love people. I don't have a heart for the world, as Carlos had texted. So what then is the proper motivation for missions? If it's not a heart for the world, what type of heart should we have that will motivate us to joining God in missions? So if you have your Bibles, look with me at 1 John chapter 2. That's going to be our text today. Um, we're going to read from verse 15 through 17. But, but honestly, before I do that, I'm going to read just a, a myriad of different scriptures. They all have to do about the world. And as I read, I, I want you to try to discern what, what type of heart should I have for the world in light of these scriptures. James 1 verse 27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained or unpolluted from the world. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Mark 8, 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? James doesn't mince words in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, you adulteresses, do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 2 Peter 1, 4 says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. As we listen to these scriptures, we, we hear that the world corrupts, the world stains, the world pollutes, and a love for the world actually makes us an enemy of God. So let's go to our primary passage today in First uh, John chapter 2, verse 15. It reads, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What I'd like for us to do over the next 20 minutes or so is just unpack that scripture. What we find in this scripture, there's two different hearts. There's a heart for the world and there's a heart for the Father. Whoever has a heart for the world does not have a heart for the Father. They're, they're opposed to one another. They're oil and vinegar, black and white. They don't exist together. And what we see in this passage, especially in verse 16, is that there's three common, very ageless temptations that try to lead us away from a heart for the Father and gravitate towards a heart for the world. I say ageless temptations because what I intend to show today is that these temptations existed in the Garden of Eden. These temptations existed uh, when Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness and to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. It's like Paul was on to something in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. says, no temptation has overtaken you 
except for that which is common to man. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life lure us away from a heart for the Father to possess a heart for the world. But if we want to live on mission with God, we have to oppose that heart for the world and possess a heart for the Father. So let's look at the first one, the desire of the flesh. I did a Greek word study on this word desire, and I hate to break it to you, but all it really means is a desire. Many translations use the word lust. It's a longing, an intense craving, a desire. In this case, it's a desire of the flesh or anything that is of natural humanity, natural mankind, the physical nature of of man. These natural cravings that we have of, of, of our flesh as humans are things like sleep or food, or sex. It it conjures up this image of uh, Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wants Peter to watch and pray with him, but instead he tells Peter, hey hey Peter, your spirit is willing. You have this desire, this heart for the Father, but your flesh is weak. The desire for sleep is outweighing the desire of the Father right now. Let's look at Eve in the Garden of Eden. We see this desire of the flesh. It's this natural craving above the will of God. Verses 4 through 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. I'm I'm going to be reading and we're going to be flipping a good bit. So if you just want to listen in, that will be fine. But Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. It says, The serpent said to the woman, If you eat of this fruit, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... It's a desire of the flesh. Humans get hungry. And although Eve had been granted access to every fruit in the Garden of, of Eden, which is what Genesis 3.1 tells us, she saw the fruit that was forbidden. And her natural craving for that, her desire for the flesh, led her to take of its fruit and eat. Her craving was for the flesh, not for the will of God. Her heart was for the world as she gave in to the desire of her flesh rather than a heart for the Father. But let's look at Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 4, it's verses 1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. I think that's the understatement of the year. We, we get hungry throughout the day, but if you don't eat for 40 days, it's more than hunger. You're starving. He ate nothing during those days. The devil came to him and said, If you are truly the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. It's a desire of the flesh. Humans get hungry, and don't miss this. Jesus Christ was fully man. He was fully human. He knows what it's like to experience the desires of the flesh. He hungered. Yet unlike Eve, Christ's craving was not for the flesh, but for the will of God. His heart was for the Father, not for the world. So he looked at Satan and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus was emphatically saying, I live not for the desire of the flesh, but for the desire of the will of God. I live not with a heart for this world, but a heart for the Father. So I need to ask us as a church body, who do we more closely align with? Like Eve, do you possess a heart for the world as you desire the flesh above the spirit? Galatians 5 verse 17 says, for the desires of the flesh Uh, are against the spirit and the desires of the flesh are evident 
I encourage you to take some time today and look through that list in Galatians 5, verse 17, and, and begin to evaluate, am I giving in to the desires of the flesh above the desire for the Father? 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and then secondly, the desires of the eyes. The same word here is desire, a lust, a craving, a longing for. But this time it's not of the flesh, it's of the eyes. It's of that which is seen. The second temptation that seeks for us to possess a heart for the world, opposed to a heart for the Father, is a longing for what is seen above what is unseen. If you look back at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the desire of the flesh, and it was a delight to the eyes. The desire of the eyes. Eve was tempted with a heart for the world by the desires of her natural eyes. She saw that the fruit looked good. How many of us are guilty of possessing a heart for the world by living for and pursuing that which is seen? It's synonymous with the sin of coveting. It's looking horizontally at things and beginning to pursue them above the will of God. But once again, let's look at Jesus in Luke chapter 4, this time in verse 5. It says, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you but worship me, it will be yours. It's a desire of the eyes. Satan took him up high, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all the kingdoms in their strength, in their glory, in their majesty. Satan knew that Jesus came to be king of kings, to, to redeem the kingdoms of the world. And Satan's saying, look at him. That's what you want. That's your desire. I'll give it to you if you but worship me. But Jesus had a heart that was for the Father and rebuked the devil and said, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus showed us that he did not live for a desire for his eyes, but a desire for that which is eternal. As 2 Corinthians 4 says, The things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, who do you more closely align with here? What heart do you possess? Do you covet the things that you see? Or like Christ, do you covet God's will above all else? Exodus twenty seventeen reads that we shall not covet. And then it lists a bunch of things that we're tempted to covet. Things like you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's possessions, your neighbor's job, anything that is not yours. So I have to ask, are, are we so busy keeping up with the proverbial Joneses that we've succumbed to the desires of our eyes as opposed to a desire for the Father's will? Hear the words of Jesus who overcame this temptation. In Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus says, Take care. Be on your guard against all coveting, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So going back with me to 1 John chapter 2, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and third, the pride of life. We're pretty familiar with the word pride, and, and the Greek word here refers to an empty presumption that trusts in the stability of earthly things. It's, it's really where do you find your stability? Where do you find your security? Are you the master of your own fate, the controller of your own destiny? The word life, pride of life, it's, it's just the object of that pride. Perhaps it's in our resources, our stature, our strength, our wealth, our, our connections. The third temptation that tries to get us to possess this heart for the world as opposed to our heart for the Father is anything that attempts to exalt us as anything other than wholly dependent 
upon God for life and breath and everything. Let's look again at Eve. Here we have the pride of life showing up twice in Genesis chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. It says, Satan looks at Eve and says, For God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delight of the flesh, desire of the flesh, that it was a delight to the eyes, desire of the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one like God, the pride of life. Eve, instead of being content as a dependent being, desired to become like God. But again, let's look at Jesus. In Luke 4, 9 through 12, Satan takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple and he tells him, hey, throw yourself down from here. Even the scriptures bear witness that you're special. You're the only begotten son of God. You're going to receive preferential treatment. Throw yourself down. He'll send the angels here to catch you. Presume to be something. Jesus looked at Satan and said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus was stating what we read in Philippians chapter 2. I did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I'm not seeking preferential treatment. In fact, I laid that aside so that I can take the form of a servant to die on the cross. It's the path of humility, not the path of pride. This was the ministry of Jesus. In John 6, verse 38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the Father's. I only speak what I hear the Father speaking. I only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus possessed a heart for the Father in contrast to a heart for the world. Again, I encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to evaluate your life. Do you boast in your life as if you've pulled yourself up to your, own, your position by your own bootstraps? Where do you find your security? Where do you find your stability? C.S. Lewis wrote that a proud person is always looking down on things and on people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see what is above you. So let me try to land this plane and summarize where we've been before we move into the points of application. We want to be a church that makes wholehearted disciples of Christ. As Daniel taught a couple weeks ago, we want to join God in the ministry of reconciliation by sharing the gospel unashamedly with all nations, with our neighbors and all nations. But like Paul, I think we can all agree that we have the desire to do what is right, but oftentimes we find that we don't have the ability to carry it out. What we need to, to have the ability to live on mission is not a heart for this world. It's a heart for the Father. So how? How, how do we cultivate this heart for the Father? How do we overcome the temptations of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life? So I'm going to let Scripture answer that question for us. I referenced a few of these scriptures earlier. Um, one is found in Titus chapter 2. The other is in James 4. Titus 2 verses 11 through 12 reads this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. James 4, 4 says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But he goes on in verse 6, it says, but he gives more grace. Both of these scriptures reveal to us that to cultivate a heart for the Father, to overcome the temptations of this world, we don't need to work harder. We don't need to apply more discipline yet. We need grace. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. He gives more grace to help us cultivate this heart for the Father. We all know that we're saved by grace, that it's God's unmerited favor, but we can't stop there. 
Grace is not just unto salvation. It's, it's God's holy influence over our soul that strengthens, that keeps, that kindles, and in this case, trains us in Christ-likeness. The first and most important way for us to renounce the world is to accept God's grace in our lives and to ask for more of his grace to embrace the heart of the Father. Our world needs our Father, and our Father is a gracious God. We need grace to possess this heart for the Father. The second thing I read here in Titus 2 as well as in James 4 is is we need to repent. Church, we're losing the concept of repentance in a very watered-down, comfort-seeking Christianity. Part of my job is to train the next generation of missionaries to take the gospel to some of the most unreached, hardest places on earth. As part of this training, we spend nearly a month with these young people just trying to nail down what is the gospel. 95% of our students will respond to that question with something like this. The gospel is that God created us to be in relationship with him. That we sinned and broke that relationship between us and God. And that third, Jesus came to save us from our sin, to restore us to relationship with God. God created, we sinned, Jesus saves I mean, that sounds pretty good, right? That's a a pretty good depiction of the gospel. The, The only issue here is that it's incomplete. When Jesus came preaching and opening up his ministry, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Acts chapter two, when 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus, they began to ask Peter, what must we do? And Peter said, repent every one of you and be baptized. We are missing, in, that, in that, that demonstration of the gospel, we're missing the essential response to the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to repent. Titus 2, verse 12 says, we must renounce these worldly passions. James 4, 8 says, we have to cleanse our hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We can't be double-minded. We can't say yes to the grace of God and continue to walk towards the world. We can't embrace a heart for the Father and continue to pursue the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. We can't be double-minded. We need to repent. And there are two elements to repentance. The first is confession. Uh, but, But confession can't be standalone. We can't just say, I'm sorry, I've sinned. Anybody who has kids is aware of this. My four-year-old has this unique ability of just pounding on his two-year-old sister. And when I raise my voice from across the room to get his attention, immediately he turns to me and starts saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, but he's not really sorry. He just wants to avoid the consequence. He's quick to confess, but his behavior isn't going to change. Repentance is confessing, yes, but it's also turning. It's renouncing. It's walking away from those temptations of the world and walking towards the Father. We have to repent. So scripture is clear. We are commanded and commissioned to make disciples of all nations, to join God in the ministry of reconciliation as his ambassadors. But we cannot do it if we possess a heart for the world. We can only do it if we possess a heart for the Father. But to do that, we, we need grace. We need his grace. We need his holy influence over us to do that. We also need to repent. We can't be double-minded. We can't live on mission with God, yet also continue to entertain a heart for this world. So let me conclude our time here by sharing a quick story. When we lived in Hindu South Asia, um, we took a lot of our short-termers to this one particular temple. Many of the temples in, in all religions of the world, really, you see this in Scripture as well, they, they put these temples on high places, on high hills or mountains. And the belief is, the higher that you put this temple, the closer you are to God. 
And in this one particular temple, there's about 700 stairs you have to climb to get to the top. And y'all, it's like 115 this day, and I'm taking a short term. It's like my eighth time. I don't want to be there. We're walking up these stairs, and we pass these women. There's a group of about 15 women. And as we pass them, we notice that they'll take a couple of steps, and then they'll lay on their face on these stairs. And then they'll stand up and take a couple steps, and then lay on their face. They're, they're, they're showing their repentance. They're showing this, this merit that they need as they approach this deity at the top of the temple. It had to have taken two to three hours for them to climb to the top. And once they got there, we and our group were already there. We're there with our tour guide. And um, these 15 women, they come and they fall before this deity. And you know, I'll never forget this. I'll never uh, forget the impression that their emotion made on me. They began weeping. There was an authentic, just broken heartedness, a, a poor in spirit that they were demonstrating. And they're, they're weeping in front of this deity. And, and all of a sudden they start chanting. The same chant over and over and over. And I look at our tour guide and I say, translate this for me. What are they saying? He says, oh, they're saying something like, uh, come down. Oh, oh, deity, why won't you come down? Why won't you come down? Everything's so easy up here for you. But down there we're hurting. We're broken. We're, we need you. Why won't you come down? Oh, please come down. And again, the emotion of this was, was almost too, too much to bear. And as I'm walking down the stairs, I'm broken because what we just celebrated two days ago for Christmas was the fact that he has already come down. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. We know what God is like and we know how to be in relationship with him because he came down in the form of Jesus. But there are people spread out all over this world who don't know that who don't know that Jesus has came to save them from their sins. We have to be God's ambassadors. We're being invited to partake in this ministry of reconciliation. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I was pretty torn up as we walked down that day, and, and we spent that night with our tour guide in a homestay. He invited us into our home. We spent the night with he and his family uh, enjoying a meal. And as we sat there, I began to ask him questions about his spirituality. I learned that he came from a particular people group of 55 million people, and there are 0.00% known believers. 55 million no known believers within this people group. And I asked him, have you ever heard of Jesus? And he says, oh, yes, I've heard of Jesus. And I, mean, I was shocked based on what I had just seen. I was shocked that he had heard of Jesus. And I said, well, tell me more. And he told me the story, it was a pretty miraculous story, about 10 years ago, he had been framed for murder by a particular family member, and, and the cops were closing in on him and began to really threaten him that they were going to take him in for this murder and convict him of this crime, and he was desperate, and part of this desperation was crying out to every deity he could imagine for help, for mercy, uh, for deliverance, and part of that prayer was to Jesus. He had heard about Jesus either on TV or the radio, and he cries out to Jesus to, to save him from this particular situation. He goes to bed that night pretty despairing, and he wakes up the next morning, and he tells me at 4 a.m. he woke up um, alive because he had this vivid dream. And in this dream, Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus told him, don't worry, my son, just wait until Thursday. It was on a Monday night that he had this dream. He wakes up Tuesday, and he's, he's just anxiously waiting. You can imagine the anticipation. Wednesday comes and goes, Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon. Finally, on Thursday evening, he hears a knock at his door. And this is a true story. He goes to this door, he opens it, and there's two women standing there. And these two women look at him and said, last night we had a dream that we were supposed to give you this. And they hand him a Bible. I couldn't believe it. He, he had this dream that everything was going to be okay and wait till Thursday. On Thursday, these women show up and they're handing him a Bible. On Friday morning, the police come and acquit him of all the charges. 
Then he looks at me and says, for 10 years, I've been reading the Bible, but I can't understand what it means. Do you know of anybody that can help me understand this? I, I wish all missionary testimonies were like that. Um, they're not, but oftentimes it's, we have this opportunity to play t-ball with God. He's, he's just setting things up for us to just swing away. 55 million people, for 10 years God's been pursuing this guy. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And my fear for us is that the laborers are few because we possess a heart for this world as opposed to a heart for the Father. If we want to be a church that lives on mission, that wants to make wholehearted disciples of Jesus, we have to walk away from the world. We can't look to the things that are seen, but we have to look to the things that are unseen. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much that uh, you are a missional God, that you initiated your own self-disclosure to us, that you have called us to put our faith in you. We thank you for that grace. Lord, we also thank you for the privilege and the joy, as Daniel shared with us a couple weeks ago, of, of what it means to be a part of the ministry of reconciliation, that you work through us, persuading others to put their faith, faith in you. And Lord, that's such a joy. It's such a privilege to live on mission with you. But God, we're also aware that, that it's hard, that that desire is hard to sustain. Um, but Lord, we see in Scripture that it's a heart for the Father that will get us there. It's this heart for you. It's a heart for your will above a heart for the world that will help us. Lord, we need your grace. We need your grace to say no to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. We need your grace to say yes to you. Lord, we repent. We repent of this sin that, that keeps us looking to the things that are seen as opposed to the things that are unseen. Forgive us, oh God, and restore us. Give us a clean heart as we seek to live on mission with you. In your name we pray. Amen.